0: Hello, I'm Kate Chabot, and welcome to an extra edition of the SITREP podcast. This time, one man's remarkable story of survival, how he became a prisoner of war for six months, a propaganda tool for the Kremlin, and how one of the biggest names in British football helped save his life. Sean Pinner served for nine years in the Royal Anglian Regiment, including tours of duty in Northern Ireland and Bosnia. He'd been trained in the skills needed to survive if captured but never had to use them until two decades after leaving the British Army. When Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine, Sean had been settled there for four years and had enlisted in the Marines as a route to citizenship. After weeks in the besieged and battered city of Mariupol, he was captured, tortured, subjected to a mock execution, and then sentenced to death. He says three words from his wife helped him get through the ordeal. Live, Fight, Survive, the title of his new book. From signing up as a boy to volunteering in Syria and the surreal moment he met his unlikely saviour, Sean has been telling me his story. It is remarkable, but also distressing in parts. Sean, really good to speak to you. We'll talk about your story from the beginning in a moment, but let's start with with now. It's one year or just over a year since you were first freed from Russian captivity. How has that year been and how are you?
1: Well, it's been a crazy year, really. Uh, it, it's sort of, I got released and four weeks after my release, I, I met up with my wife. She had to get a visa. And then shortly after that, uh, I was approached by... Um, a NATO country to to talk about my experience. And, uh, I went over to Norway, uh, spoke to soldiers and people over there about my captivity and everything I was taught because I, I, I'd done SIA, which is survival, escape, resistance, evade training in America some sort of 30 years ago. So they were really interested in talking to me about what worked, what didn't work and it went down really well. And then one talk led to another. So I've been working since really I got released, giving something back to the military. So mm. I've been, I've been to Sweden, Denmark, got to Canada in October, traveling. Um, and then uh, I've obviously been trying to get back, my life back together. So so there was a massive void in in my knowledge of about what happened while I was mm. in captivity because we had no real news. And uh, I didn't really understand the media. I didn't know anything about it. Um, so, so when we were on the plane to Riyadh, it was only uh, Roman Abramovich's PA that said, you may want to, think about the media. And then she was showing me pictures of news papers in Japan with my face on it. And that was a real culture shock.
0: And Sean, I mean, um, we'll talk about um, your amazing trip home and the, the meeting with Roman Abramovich a little bit later, but I just want to rewind. Um, you mentioned your, your love of the military, or you alluded to it, and you had a strong interest in the military as a child. Why were you so driven to join the British Army?
1: Uh, I actually got in the Navy first. One of my granddads was in the Navy, so I thought I'd try that. And, and to be honest, the only reason I joined uh, the military was because my grandad said, join the army. He said, you can run on the ground, run away on the ground. You can't run away on a boat. So <laughs> it was like, uh, okay, uh, I went to the careers office. I was on my way to HMS Valley. Uh, I got into the army through the careers office in St. Albans, and then that, that was it. I was just hooked uh it was a job i loved doing for nine years with the royal Anglins. um i traveled all around the world i was in bosnia in the early 90s did three tours of northern ireland uh, and doing things like uh in america before i went for my second tour in bosnia was everything i joined the army for you know catching food how to cook it how to eat it uh you know um basically just uh had to live off the land and then Putting all that into practice, uh, escaping evasion. It was reconnaissance. Really That's all I, I ever wanted to do and I really loved it.
0: And once you left the army, you spent nearly two decades on Civvy Street. Why, after all that time, did you then decide to go as a volunteer to Syria?
1: I, I was going through, I had my own business for about 15 years. I was in waste, hazardous waste management. And it really got to a point where I'd come out of a long relationship and I was thinking, I put all that time into the business doing 16-hour days and commutes around the M25. I'd lost a bit of what I thought was valuable in life. Uh, Mm. I was very depressed. I had the chance now I was single to do something. I missed the sense of belonging, doing something good. Um, So I I had some friends working out in Syria who were sort of saying, you know, come out and volunteer, help the Kurds. Uh, and I, at the time, I remember thinking there's not enough going on to help those guys. You know, exact, uh, ISIS were rife. So I give it a go for eight months and loved it. Uh, it was my first sort of back into that army realm. Um, but it, it, it was it was really hard going, uh, mm. I, you know, working in the desert. I was sort of smuggled in, flew into Iraq, smuggled in through a net of safe houses into Syria. But I met a culture of uh, the people that, Really, I wouldn't have gone to if I hadn't done that. Each one of the Westerners that were helping in various, not everybody was fighters. There were, some people were solar panel builders. There was builders out there, medics. My job mm-hmm. was to assist the security for a medic team that were working out there at the time. And, um, you know, we had a $250,000 bounty on our head, So it didn't come without risks. But I was exhausted when I got back, but really did enjoy my time helping the Kurds.
0: I mean, self-deprecatingly, you kind of called yourselves minimum wage mercs. Um, I mean, sometimes the outside world it looks like you have a thing for wars, and some and people who go and volunteer do get a bit of a bad name. But how professional was your setup?
1: Uh, I, it was enough that I didn't want to work with the militia again. I knew it wasn't for me. It was incredibly hard working out there with volunteers, just because you have different views different viewpoints so you know you have your communists you have your socialists you have your liberals you have your military people a lot of the guys didn't have any military experience and it, it became very difficult so
0: mm-hmm.
1: it i i knew when i went to ukraine it's not something i wanted to do again
0: so, so how, how did you end up in ukraine I, I
1: came back after about eight months in in syria and then I tried to sort of settle back into normal life again, and uh, I really wasn't interested in going to Ukraine. But I, again, I was falling back into that same scenario. Do I really want to be going back working in hazardous waste management? And I thought, if I don't change something, I'm going to go back down that route again. And I was going already into maybe drinking a little bit more, bitter bit of depression. But I was again craving a maybe adventure. I'd spent nine years learning how to fight and fight against Russians. So when I was given the opportunity to go to see some friends in Kiev, and then uh, would I be interested in teaching? And I was like, what? Uh, And then they were saying, well, come to Ukraine. Come down to Mariupol and just see the setup before you make any decisions. So I went down to Mariupol and a friend of mine was an EOD uh, sapper who was demining down in in Ukraine. And, And I never went home for five years. I, I fell in love with it down there. Um, so they asked me if I would go on a selection course and become an instructor, uh, a sniper instructor down there. So I spent two years working with National Guard. Uh, also, Azov, I was a bit reluctant to work with Azov because of the stigma attached to them. But that, when I went down there, just vanished. It, it wasn't how the media portrayed Azov.
0: I mean, when you when you met the Azov Brigade, uh, who you were training sniper skills, field craft surveillance and recon- reconnaissance, um, coming from a British Army background, how did they compare at that point in 2018?
1: They were very good. They were probably the best unit in Ukraine at that time. They were innovative. They were making LSVs for to move anti-tank weapons quickly. They were constantly thinking about how how they can improve and, and be better than they were. And also they embrace Western tactics. So my job was there actually went as a sniper instructor, but I actually taught more about less reliance on electrical equipment, GPS. And when I got there, part of my one of my lessons to to pass and selection was like, I noticed they kept using shooting apps and uh, they were using Google maps to get around from A to B. Uh, none of them seem to have maps or know how to build your own map. So a lot of my time was then more on, basic infantry skills uh, but they 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 had heart they were super fit uh, and me being in my 40s uh, I had to still pass like a BFT and they were doing it in 13 minutes and I was jogging it in in 14-15 minutes still and over time I got fitter and fitter and fitter and, and working with them and, uh, and and I never went home it was it was a great job I had a uh, we were in Yanukovych's former beach house on Yazov Sea I was literally had a private beach, a Olympic swimming pool, and I was teaching and back in a job I really loved, and the structure of it was was really good.
0: And at what point did you actually move to becoming part of Ukraine's fighting forces?
1: I married, fell in love with Mariupol, was looking to retire there. Married uh, my wife, who who was from Crimea, uh, so she's moved when they illegally annexed Crimea uh, to Mariupol, and she was a deminer on the front lines. Uh, So she was actually working on the front lines, looking for mines. And she wanted to give something to her country. And I I sort of fell in love with that. She spoke really good English. She spoke Russian as a first language. She speaks Ukrainian too. So I sort of fell in love with that spirit of her. And then she taught me a lot about Ukrainian culture and about Ukrainian cooking. And uh, we got on really well. And two years later, we got married. We had all our friends and a community that we'd built Russian-speaking Ukrainians. Pretty much everybody spoke Russian as a first language in Mario. So, you know, we go back to the Russian narratives that they were saving Russian speakers in East Ukraine. It, it's poppycock to use an old phrase. It's 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 really bad. And it just didn't resonate with me. So when I needed a visa, I had to then transfer to to the Marines to get a contract to be able to then get my visa, my permanent residence, my citizenship. Like most armies do in the world now, you can enlist. I was the first foreigner to pass all their parachuting um, training and jump as a Ukrainian soldier. So I wasn't Mm -hmm. there as a war tourist. I'd I'd learned Russian. I'd married Ukrainian. I I passed what their equivalent to P company, uh, did nine jumps, including a night jump, four combat jumps. I then became a section commander with the Marines, which was totally unheard of. Uh, I, I ran a position on the front line the year before. Uh, even it was so unusual that the, the you know the, the parliamentarians from Rada that Parliament would come down and see the Brit position that was being run by a Brit on the front lines. It was that unusual. Then I passed the Marines Beret test. Over time, it 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 sort of developed into more of a career. I I, I loved it. So when I was on the front line, it was I was just part of the Ukrainian army.
0: And then on February the twenty fourth, twenty twenty two. Where were you at the moment you learned Russia had launched a full-scale invasion?
1: Well, this was my fourth rotation on the front lines. We were on a routine deployment about 15, 20 minutes outside Mariupol. uh, And I was in a forward operating base, about nine people strong, at advanced forward position, which was an early warning system. So it was about 800 metres further forward than the first line. And on the day of the invasion, it was just hell. It was shock and awe. We we just started the withdrawal back after eleven hours of fighting on the first day. We 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 started to withdraw back into Mariupol.
0: You were tasked to defend Mariupol, an incredibly long and hard battle that was reported around the world. Had anything prepared you for what happened in that city?
1: No. Uh I've never seen anything like it in the thirteen years previous. I was in the military. I've been to Bosnia. I saw the remnants of it in Sarajevo and Mostar and Vitez. Uh, Ireland's obviously nothing like like this scenario. Uh, It was my first experience of grad uh, and pretty much my first experience of uh, Russia's freedom of the the sky and and being able to launch rockets into positions. That was uh, horrendous. I don't know how we got through the first day with not one casualty, but the amount of... Ordnance and, and bullets and rockets that were being shot at our position. I mean, we had to extract uh, about 800 meters back to the first line from our position, but that was only after about 10 hours of fighting on the front line. It was just crazy. We didn't have the manpower to stretch all the way along the front line. I knew we would withdraw back to Mariupol. My experience told me that that was going to be the case, even though nobody really told us what was going to happen. Uh, and slowly we were going back through Telekivka to Satana to M- Mariupol and it became clear very quickly that we were the tip of the spear and I thought the world needed to know. So I, I did a, a a little snippet for Channel 4, which got me on the radar, not just with everybody at home and the world at home, but it, it, it really got the antennas picked up in Russia too. So they knew there was a Brit in Ukraine and a Brit specifically in Mariupol and um, that's when really I became on the radar everywhere after that Channel Four interview at the school where I was saying Look, the Russians had just bombed a school. Uh, we've been helping to try and get you know the equipment out, the people out. And that was really when it started. To, I mean, that's where we had our first casualties too. So we were hemorrhaging people really back from from that point, um, which which again you just puts more pressure on you because you lose people and they're out of the game for a bit and you're doing double the work. Um, and then not only you dealing with grad as well, uh, it, it, you're trying to keep an eye on people that have never had the training you've had. So, you know, lots of uh, Ukrainian soldiers were taking cover on crossroads. It was trying to get them off the crossroads and saying, look, artillery uses those as, as points for targets. So get off the crossroads and trying to keep people intact as as much as we could while we were withdrawing back to Mariupol.
0: And how were you captured?
1: After seven weeks, six, seven weeks of fighting, uh, we'd literally just run out of ammunition, weapons. We were very low on water. Uh, So we were generally, uh, I got blown up in an IED, a train IED in Mariupol. So I'd spent a night in hospital being treated for flash burns. I was seeing a lot of casualties in the hospital. You know, it it was horrendous. I was really glad to get back on the line after that because it was just dreadful. They were running out of morphine running out of uh, just basically water. We didn't even have that. Uh, they didn't have any painkillers. Bandages were getting lower and lower, but there was people really, really bad in hospital. Uh, and it, soon we got surrounded. And by late March, early April, it was over. Uh, we They were trying to cut us off between Illichat and Azov style. Uh They were moving in. The artillery then got linear on our position and started bombing behind the embankment that we were behind because we were sort of... Our position was protecting the main route in from Donetsk to Mariupol. Um, and next to it was a train line, which is where I got blown up on. Uh, but we were hemorrhaging a lot of people. So I had to go back to the position and 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 realise that I was one of the only guys that could use a PKM. The the reservists that were called up were ill-trained. Uh, and it started to... We, again, we didn't have enough food. So we were starting to really go down by the end of March, early April. Uh, and then it was decided that My boss said we were going to go uh, and try and escape to uh, a sister battalion that was fighting Russians on the Azov coast, which was about 130 kilometers away. We were never going to surrender. It was about getting out and starting my escape and evasion at that point. Um, So I started to prepare for that, save a bit of food, started to cut down my gear. What do I need? Because if you're carrying too much, it can kill you. So really, you're just going with what you're wearing, a little bit of ammunition and, and whatever you've got on you. On the 12th of April, we made the dash out of Mariupol. And that's the video footage you see uh, of us getting ambushed on the way out. It was dark at the time, so everybody just went in different directions. And then uh, I was captured about two hours outside of Mariupol. The sun had come up by then and I was captured. I literally walked into a wooded area into what looked like a village looking for water and food and uh, literally walked into a forward observation point. It was broad daylight. I'd literally walked into six or seven bods who were in front of me, 30 metres in front of me. I didn't have anywhere to run. Um, I didn't really have a chance to to, to go anywhere. So uh, I had to call time and make a decision that I was going to surrender at that point. There uh, I, I was, I was nowhere I could go.
0: And there began your incarceration, your imprisonment. Um... You document quite graphically in your book the torture that you endured. Um, can you tell us a bit about it now? Do you feel you can talk about it? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, before I'd, I'd managed to escape a aid, I got a, a phone call out to my wife uh, and said, look, it's over. We're surrounded. We've got no food, no ammo. There was like a pause, uh, and she just got really angry with me on on the phone and just said, you brought the world's attention to Opal. You guys are fighters. You guys are amazing. Keep fighting and just survive. So I had this mantra going around in my head if I survive. So when I was captured, this mantra just kept going through my head and helped me through. Firstly, uh, I was taken to a company-sized area about 10 minutes past their first line uh, where I was beaten um, and then stabbed in the leg. They didn't want me running anywhere. So they literally just started to take the clothes off my body, look for tattoos, maybe far right tattoos. Uh, I didn't have any. So they were not. So the guy just stabbed me the leg, right thigh, uh, two, three inch gash. And and it was very, very painful. Um, And then they took me about 30, 40 minutes to another place, which was really intimidating i'd been on enough security briefs in the uk and and seen these buildings before i went to bosnia where it's like a, a tiled floor with a hole in the middle which is easy to get the blood and a real nasty place um and they just put paddles on my fingers and started to electrocute me uh and they electrocuted me three or four times while going through my social media and telling me i was dead on the internet they covered me in ukrainian flag and then showed me the 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 video of me being electrocuted and uh, on a phone. So it, it was pretty, with no real uh, tactical questioning. Um, yeah. They were just asking me stupid things like, are you MI6, are SAS? And, and I was saying, you've got my ID. And then I was, uh, a pistol was put to the back of my head and they fired off the action uh, in a mock execution and just said, we're only joking. And then he pistol whipped me. Um, and I was there for about 45 minutes of just getting beaten. At one point, I was tasered, I went to the floor, and then I was taken to what we called the black site, which is an unofficial site. Uh, I always knew that they were talking about moving us on because nobody really quizzed me whether I spoke Russian or not at that point. I'd also got a glimmer of hope. They said that um, we may exchange you for a, a general, which I was thinking already I might have a little bit of value. Um, and then I got taken to a black site uh, where suddenly – they were interested in my well-being, which was a kind of strange but predictable. And they were asking me if I wanted water. They were going to stitch up my leg. Uh, and they told me I was Danetsk. And then they put me into uh, isolation cell uh, several days uh, while they tortured me some more. So they put uh, electrodes on my ears.
0: How did you draw on your military experience to get through that?
1: Oh, I don't know. If you'd have asked me six months earlier how I'd have dealt with it, I I don't know. Um, The the isolation cell and the starvation was probably harder. I know people think it's weird, but starvation was the hardest part. I mean, they didn't feed me for 50 days. Uh, We had bread. We were pulled out for propaganda. Um, We got a good timeline of... Imagery from the minute I was captured where I looked okay to the minute I went to trial where I was like gaunt, maybe 60 kilos. I was looking really bad. Uh, and that was after 50 days of just interrogation propaganda, torture, interrogation propaganda. For three weeks, we didn't even realize it was Ukraine. When we really did get the information come through, and somebody, Paul Uri, who, who was an engineer who got captured to take it to the black site, sort of said, No, mate, we, we've sunk the Moscow Uh No, Ukraine's fighting back. We pushed them out of Kiev. So we were in uh, the isolation cells giving silent high fives. And, you know, then really we started to fight back. Uh, and I always used the great escape as a, one of the, the cliches, but it was true. We we started to model ourselves on the, the great escape. Suddenly it was like pushing, pushing people into getting information when we were together, trying to work out what happens next. And I was the only one that really had an experience of this, that really understood the phases of it and whether we were – really going to be used for propaganda um, and why we had a value to so ascertain we had a value. We started to build up more confidence, ask for things, ask for cigarettes, ask for water. You're drawing on all your experience for 13 years in the military. You're then drawing from your seer course from 30 years ago. And you then start to realize I'm a bit of a leader here. I'm really going to not have to stand out. And you try and be the grey man while giving people advice. So, yeah, we, it was really that that sort of drawing on all that experience, drawing on the movies. You can put, you know, you can do all the practice with conduct after capture, but, you know, when you put that into practice, it's very painful.
0: Were you actually planning an escape then before you went to trial?
1: We didn't. Uh, well, I was always taught the best chance of escape is travelling from A to B. Once you get to B, it's very hard. But I wasn't going mm. anywhere. I was stabbed in the leg. So there, there wasn't anywhere I was going to get out. We were transferred to a new prison just before the trial, um, and we had to make those decisions. Uh, The Ukrainian shelling when we got there was non-existent. By the time we left in September, they'd got to within four kilometres of the prison. So rounds, Ukrainian rounds were coming into the prison, uh, and we were sort of hoping a round would come in and take out the building or take out the wall, and we would have a chance. And then you're having those conversations with other senior guys who are fit, saying... Are we going to take everybody? Because we had one guy who's really overweight, who never had a military experience, who was struggling with type C diabetes. We had another guy who's got pneumonia, who's really old. Are we going to take them or are we going to try and get out? And, And those decisions we had to make in the prison.
0: But then I suppose circumstances took over. You went to trial and you were accused of treason. You decided to plead guilty. Why did you decide that?
1: Well, we didn't have a choice. We went to the trial and they read out the testimonies. Uh, we didn't really understand the charges that they levied against us. I wasn't really pinning on any hopes on, on getting through the trial without a guilty verdict. So we pleaded guilty to two because we were told there'd be less of a sentence. But the serious charge, we were going to plead not guilty. And when we did plead not guilty, uh, the court was stopped. All the cameras were turned off and they were just made it very clear that we couldn't do that. It, it wasn't in the agenda. Um, she said you were going to plead guilty because it's a lesser sentence. What they wanted to do now, in hindsight, was to make us go through that, get the death penalty, then the appeals process, get rejected from that, to ridicule us, embarrass us. They weren't really interested in the truth. They just—it was all for propaganda. So we really weren't given the opportunity to say uh, not guilty.
0: And, and when you got that—that that death sentence, death by firing squad. Can you recall that moment?
1: Yeah, I was angry. The pictures will show you I'm angry. I was angry we didn't get a fair representation. I was angry we didn't get a chance to defend ourselves. It, that decision was made in in two days. It, it, it was just all scripted. So I was angry. It's quite natural for everybody to go up and down in the process, but it it it, 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 it was only about two or three days later where I was sitting there going, I could die. It's just and you get a lot of time to think. <laughs> Um, we were locked up mm. for 23 hours a day so we had an hour walk if we if we were good uh um but yeah generally you just locked up thinking about that every day trying to keep people motivated that gallows humor I keep talking about that helps you deal with those really bad times uh, and when the other guys went to court it was the th- it was a time where I was on my own for the first time I'd put this sort of resistance up and uh, I not just collapsed in the cell I just broke down it was just venting um, I was really upset because I, I just didn't know whether we were going to get out of there. And, and then after that, it was like I was 70 not sure that it was never going to happen. Then it was like, oh, maybe 30. Um, but all the time we were dealing with Ukrainian shells coming into the prison and everyday life in, the, in a prison. It was a very stressful time.
0: And then there came the hope, the fact that the hint that you might not be killed uh, by firing squad, that you might be Given over in a prisoner exchange, how did you learn about that?
1: Quite early on, we were used as propaganda, and it was quite made clear quite early on that we could be swapped for uh, Medvedchuk. This is yeah. the
0: Godfather, present Putin's daughter.
1: Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So we could. So we don't. We didn't know why that sort of uh, really petered out, but um, it sort of rejuvenated again, and uh, we were joined by three Americans this time. And then we started to realize in the prison that. Every every Westerner, whether they were caught in Donbass or not, was being brought here for, for show. Um, and then we started, again, you're trying to work out whether you've got some value. We were able, after our trial, to then help the other guys who were then going to their trial and just said, don't plead guilty, just stick with not guilty, don't change it. You're going to get the death penalty anyway. We started to build up a resistance then in, in McKeeska prison, saying, look, if the next lot delayed their court case by maybe a month, it meant... Me, Aidan and Ibrahim may live a month and a half longer and a month and a half longer that they could exchange us. So we were fighting for time. Um, the guys all just said we've been tortured and they've got a month and a half recess, which meant that we were going to be alive another month and a half. But they never got their court case and we got wind that we could be exchanged. And then we were taken to Rostov Don around the 22nd of September.
0: That moment when your freedom finally came, you were taken from a prison cell to a luxury private jet with Roman Abramovich <laughs> on board, the former owner of Chelsea, and the man who brokered your freedom. I mean, the the, the, the contrast is, is quite unbelievable. Um, did it seem real? No, uh,
1: we'd spent 13 hours in transit. It was the worst journey ever. My face was bleeding where they'd give me a goodbye present. They ran my face into a metal bar getting up into the back of the truck. They, three of the guys lost footwear. They looked battered. Uh, poor America's face blew up. They tied the tape around his hood too tight and his face, he looked like uh, Homer Simpson, elephant man. He just, he couldn't see out of his eyes. Uh, we were in a really bad state. And when we left, we were actually okay. But we didn't know what we were going into. We just saw lots of Saudis walking around an airport uh, and a guy, old guy with a pa um and i said to andy i said that old guy looks like Robert abramovich he went what's he doing here what would you do in what stuff done and then we got onto we got sort of marched out in stress positions out on the bus and then the airplane and uh we went up one at a time and i, I just walk into this airplane there's carpet it's like guys arab guys in black suits looking swish and I walk round a corner at the back of the plane, and there's Aiden in a lazy boy like this, going, "This is not too bad, is it?" You know, and I'm like, "What on earth is going on?" So we sit down, and then when they close the door, the the doctor comes in and says, uh, "We're going to give you a free health check on the plane. We're going to give you some new clothes, but you know, providing we get out of Russian airspace, you're exchanged." Well, then we just broke down and. We were over the moon because we really had no idea. We were just, we were just, as we were taking off, I was just looking back thinking, please don't shoot us down. Please don't shoot us down. It was all the way out until we got out of Russian airspace. We realized we were free. And then uh, I was coming out of a toilet with my change of clothes. And uh, this old guy's talking to John Harden. And uh, he said, where are you from? I said, London. I said, where are you from? He said, London. I said, you don't have to look like Roman Abramovich. He went, I am Roman Abramovich. And I was like, what are you doing here? um and it all became really surreal then you know what did he say to you when you
0: said what are you doing here
1: well john john just sort of said i bet he's wondering why you didn't buy west ham and he just straight (laughs) off the bat went well chelsea chelsea was closer to my house um (laughs) and and i was just hilarious um and then his pa sort of helped us with the media um she was really nice and helped us with that told us about the world news uh, and what was going on and how we become world news because we really had no idea. We had a big seven-month gap of of any sort of news. We knew the Queen had dead, uh, because the guard came in and just sort of said, "The Queen's died. Uh, <laughs> your Queen's dead." Mm-hmm. And John Hardin is is quite um a Labour man and anti-royalist, but he was the first one that went, "God save the king," <laughs> and that was the day I remember forever. And then you had one Moroccan, one Swede, um, three Americans, a Ukrainian, and four Brits. All saying, God save the king. And this Russian guard just scuttled out going, that didn't work. I don't know what, you know. Um, uh, So we knew some, but we really thought what was going on in England because we were appealing to Boris Johnson. Then Liz Truss came in and within 29 days, she got the sack and they're telling us, we were like, (laughs) what on earth is going on in England? Uh, We were just going, oh my God, we're never going to get out of here. Um, Queen's dead. Two Prime ministers have gone. We were just thinking we're never going to get out of here. It. And it's just, it's just a twist of fate. We're very, very lucky. I was lucky to get through Mariupol alive, let alone through through uh, Russia um, and through captivity. So I was. Most of my friends are still captured. So we we just try and keep Ukraine in the public eye and talk about that.
0: And and um, you you told me earlier about the conversation you had with your wife um before you were captured. Tell me about the moment when you were able to tell her you're free.
1: Very emotional. It even sends a goosebumps bumps up on my arm and my back of my neck now. It, it was very emotional because we. I managed to get through. I didn't have my wife's mobile number over several months. Uh, I'd forgotten it. So I was had to talk to it, sort of ring my mum first and sort of say, I, I could remember the house phone. Um, so I rang the house phone and, and said, I'm free. And then straight away, within two minutes, Larissa rang my mobile. <laughs> and <she was> like, <laughs> I'm here, I'm free. And she was like, oh my God, it's amazing. But I didn't actually see her until the next day when I got back to the UK. Uh, and we were just all so, so happy to be be free. But we, we really didn't know anything about what was going on at home. So we had no idea what to expect when we got to the UK. Uh, and then obviously we got smuggled through under Heathrow, like Jennifer Lopez, um, and at the back door of the airport. And then when I got home, it was just journalists were parked everywhere outside the house, and uh, we were just catching up with news. I remember the second day crying at the Queen's Funeral uh, with my dad. We were watching a documentary because we, we were just watching that. And uh, I, I just broke down then. Uh, but they were the right times to break down. I've never suffered with PTSD. Oh, I um, sleep like a baby. I I don't know. I talk about it now. Uh, I can't talk about other people, but I can talk about why probably I've dealt with it a lot better than most. And and uh, and now I talk about that, uh, about how I was a little bit old. I can understand Russian. And I'd had some training and 13 years in the minute. I knew exactly what I was getting myself into, which probably helps. And also... What I, I like to tell people is I'd had a bar which was the lowest point of my life. My dad died when I was nine. The very thing that led me to Ukraine in the first place, the depression, the anxiety, not knowing where I was going to go in my life. So I'd had this bar I didn't want to ever get to again. Uh, and at no point did I ever get to that point when I was captive or fighting in Mariupol, which sounds kind of strange, but uh, at no point did I ever get to that bar uh where it was just misery because i felt it might sound odd i had no control but i felt in some sort of control because i'd had knowledge i'd had time in the army i'd done my training back sort of some 30 years ago i, I felt a little bit in control at that point but i still get upset with mario losing friends and to put things into context sixty uh, 60 of my wedding pictures from mario three years ago most of the men are either captured or killed. So that's just us, you know, and everybody's going through that in Ukraine. So that's that's the real struggle that we try and promote and the false narratives that that Russia sort of tell everybody for the reason why they, they come into Ukraine in the first place.
0: And hindsight is, of course, always so much easier. Uh, do you regret, though, any of the decisions you made from joining the British Army to fighting in Ukraine?
1: No, none. Uh, I get asked that all the time. Do I get survivor's guilt? I, I teach this stuff. I go to a place now to teach this stuff. Uh, what, what I learned back 30 years ago, what worked, what didn't work. And I always tell people the same thing. If you get captured, you have to hold on to hope. Don't ever lose hope. And when you do get out, if you're mentally ever going to get out of that place, you know, moving forward, you really have to say, I did a good job. For me, it was about don't shit on your mates. It was like, Delay information. It was to keep look after the weakest, help the, the the guys that really don't know. It was about that. Not to mention the fact that we held Mariupol for six seven weeks. Nobody ran. Everybody was fighting till the last man. Uh, you know, so so all the way through, I can safely say we did an amazing job considering we were up against overwhelming odds in, and uh, in one of the bloodiest battles since World War Two. So, you know, we did amazingly well. We lost a lot of people and we will remember them after we we defeat Russia.
0: Sean Pinner, it's been a privilege speaking to you. Thank you so much for your time. And Sean's book, Live, Fight, Survive, is out now. News, discussions and analysis. This is ZITREP.